Hey there, educational rock stars. Are you feeling overwhelmed with lesson planning for your English language learners? Well, I've got some exciting news for you. Introducing our upcoming free webinar, Simplify Your Approach, Three Time-Saving Routines for ELL Success. Join me for a power-packed 45 minutes that's set to revolutionize your teaching strategy. In this webinar, we'll dive into three practical, easy-to-implement routines that will not only enhance your ELL teaching methods, but also save you hours of planning time. Yes, hours. So whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, these insights are tailored to help everyone make the most of their teaching time. Plus, you'll leave this webinar ready to implement these routines the next day. So mark your calendars for our two upcoming dates. I don't want you to miss this opportunity to transform your ELL lesson planning. To reserve your spot, simply sign up at www.equippingells.com slash routines. Trust me, your future self will thank you for it. I'll see you at the webinar. Teaching ELL students is a privilege and a joy. Is it easy? No way. But with the right support, you can feel empowered to tackle each day with ease and confidence. I'm your host, Beth Fauché, founder of Inspiring Young Learners. With over 10 years of teaching both nationally and internationally, I know what it takes to ensure that your ELL students have what they need to thrive today, tomorrow, and for life. I'm on a mission to empower you to equip your English language learners. Welcome to Equipping ELLs. Let's get to today's episode. Hey, Orly, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and to talk to you about this topic. Absolutely. This is the topic I'm asked about a lot, and I don't have a lot of experience. I have a lot of experience working with newcomers, but not necessarily with life students. And so I think this is going to be such a huge and helpful episode for our teachers. We have a lot to cover today, so we're going to dive in right away. But before we get started, why don't you just share a little bit about your teaching experience and what you're doing now, because it's really cool. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So I am a former teacher. I used to teach in New York City in the Bronx. And when I started teaching in a school for older adolescent newcomers, that was the first time I heard the term SLIFE used. I had never heard that before when I was teaching in a different school. And it was the first time that I realized that without having uh, more holistic data on students, particularly in their first language of instruction, their native languages, um, their more preferred languages, I wasn't able to tailor my pedagogy to the unique needs of all the kids in my classroom. And so that's when I started trying to understand who is doing this, who is collecting this data, what do we have, what resources do we have? I actually started reaching out to different researchers through universities, just like, hi, I'm a teacher here in New York. (laughs) I know you're busy, but could you make time for me? Um, and actually, people were really nice. A lot of people responded. It was so that was really helpful for me to just have a sense of what the landscape was. And this is going back over a decade. And that really led me on this path to eventually co-found this company in Liar Learning which uses first language of instruction and native language assessments and screeners to better understand both a child's unique formal schooling experience, as well as where they are in their academic skills. Wow. I I, I just feel so strongly that if you can really see where the student's at in their native language and really get a good sense of that, 
then you can plan ahead of what they really need and the support from the teacher over just assuming one thing or not and just going the same path with every newcomer or life student that enters. That's not teaching ELLs is not a one size fits all. So (laughs) definitely not. And I also think the other thing that's interesting is these kids come into our schools and our districts and the first thing we do is we screen them for their English language proficiency, right? And even our students who are, uh, you know, highly proficient in terms of their academic skills in their first language of instruction, those kids, if they don't have their English proficiency yet, they're still coming in with this almost, you know, oh, well, you don't know English yet, right? Like almost a deficit perspective. And Mm -hmm. I understand why we do it because We want to support these kids. But the other thing we haven't done is taking a look at where they are and almost taking an asset-based lens of like, okay, well, you might know algebra in your your first language of instruction, right? And so instead of all these assumptions that I think a lot of teachers and schools have still, unfortunately, in 2023 of like, these kids can't because they don't speak English yet. Instead, we want to provide them with the information to say like, yes, they can, right? And here's what they can do. And here are their interests. And here's how you can build community with these kids. And you're going to teach them English along the way, you know? So that's the approach I think we, we, we really are taking and also trying to shift that mindset all around of how we look at these kids. Yes. Well, and I think that that's what you guys are doing. And we're going to, you know, maybe at the end, you can share a little bit more about your, your assessments that you're doing, but I think you're helping to break down those barriers for the teachers who don't know their the students' native language that they're working with. So they feel like, how, I don't know how to connect. I don't know what their likes are. You know, so I love that yeah. that's where the starting place is so that now a teacher has a good idea of the holistic child they have in front of them and how to how to really reach them and, and connect with them, even if they don't speak the same language. So let's talk about SLIFE. And I yeah. would love for you to unpack a little bit about that label, you know, sharing just a little bit more in depth about that. Sure. All right. Well, let me start by saying that it is a complex label. Yeah. <laughs> it is a, this is a complex topic, right? No easy, <laughs> no easy answers here. No. <laughs> I will say there is part of the level of complexity is we don't have a federal definition, right? And okay. so we have states, about 22 of them, 23 of them, who are working with their own definitions, right? And so they've built a lot of them, um, you know, working groups or teams who have created the this definition or, or this label that they want to use in order to identify them, right? And so I think it's important to recognize the intention is really good and really positive. Why do we have labels in the first place? It's so that it's so that we can identify the services that this child may need. So I think that that intention there is really good. I think what's hard about the label is that it is a bit of a deficit mindset, right? It's looking at the interruption or the limited. Um, I think the limited piece is much more brings on that kind of deficit perspective more than interruption, right? Like anyone could have an interruption in their schooling and they oftentimes or most times need support for whatever reason the interruption is, no matter whether you are a child identified as an English learner or not, right? Right. COVID COVID interruption. (laughs) You know, I think like there's more of an objective, like when you say, okay, a child with interrupted education, there's like objective objectivity in that versus like, oh, if I, the moment I say limited, it's like, well, limited according to whom, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a little bit more oh, Western ideas of education and what's valuable. So there's more judgment yeah. there, which I think makes it trickier. And then where we start to see, you know, where this label and uh, definition is starting to then take a little bit more form and is that some states are saying, great, any grade, any age, you could be slave. 
You've got some states who say you cannot be considered slave unless if you are sixth grade or above. Interesting. Or you can't be slave unless if you are second grade and above, right? And so we don't even have a very clear age range of who we are considering slave to begin with. And then you have states, some of whom are just saying, if you have an interruption that impacts your academics, slave, right? Or or mm-hmm. school experience. And then we have states who are saying, like, you have to, we have to prove that you are two years below in your reading or math in your native language, oh, wow. which is complicated because we don't have the tool. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so it's like people jumped the, and that like circles back to the intention, right? It's like everyone jumped in to be like, we need services for these kids. And in doing so, it's like we, you know, we had these working groups creating this label. And then it was like, wait, but we don't really have the tool to fully understand who these kids are. And so then we don't have the data for it. And then we don't have funding streams for it. So it's a helpful label, but it's not really, it's helpful in the sense of starting to identify these kids, but it's not, it doesn't hold the same weight as, for example, a child who's identified as an English learner, right? You have a whole funding stream and process. So it's a really complex just I, I label, I guess, or or identification process right now because it, even the term itself is not really solidified in practice across the country. Wow. Yeah. It <laughs> is a bit complicated. And for yeah. those who are listening that are like, what's what's life? What's life? So it used to be called SIFE, right? Yes. Students with yes. In, uh, interrupted, interrupted formal education. Yep. And now it's students with a limited or interrupted formal interrupted. education. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then there are some people who will say uh, students are limited and then the I will turn into interrupted or inconsistent okay. formal education. It is complicated and seeing where things are at in the world right now. It is, you know, it's really important to have a good grasp on these students and their stories and what they're coming through and the trauma they're experiencing and, you know, understand that as best as possible so that we can go forward and give them the best support that works for them. What's the beginning place for a teacher who their school maybe doesn't have anything set up to screen them in their native language? And what what would you yeah. say? Yeah. So I, I think like talking to teachers is probably the best place to start versus a district, right? Yeah. Who's like, let's do this huge right. implementation. <laughs> and so it's like, you're, you're a teacher, you know, you have students who are coming in. Honestly, I think the best place to start is the simplest Excel spreadsheet, having an Excel spreadsheet that just to just sit with a kid using the tech tools that we have, even as simple as Google Translate, which isn't perfect. It's not perfect at all. But if you right. don't have an interpreter, um, even though there are interpreter services, right, that you can call and use, but to just start gathering data on those students. And and I will say, like, to start with environmental data. I think sometimes, like, the moment you say data, people are like, uh, mm-hmm. stay test or this, right? Like, we start to yeah. think about, like, these larger kind of data points, I guess, that teachers feel like have nothing to do with them. But yeah. when I say data, I mean, like, holistic data, data that's valuable, that we use. And so for teachers who are like, I don't know where to begin, the first place to begin is really deciding sets of questions that are going to give you a good sense of this child's formal schooling experience. And then starting really there to then determine like, do I need to do a screening in this child's first language of instruction? And if the answer is yes, which oftentimes is true, even though there aren't a lot of tools out there for students who've had significant interruptions or inconsistencies in their education, especially our older learners, 
there are a lot of free resources online that you can at least ask a student to read from, yeah. right, a book that is Arabic or Spanish or whatever it is. And um, I believe teachers are well-trained enough to have a good sense, even if you can't pinpoint exactly maybe the exact yeah. skill in every language if you don't speak no, them. Fluency. like. You have, right, exactly. The fluency, you're able to see how the student holds a book or doesn't hold a book, mm -hmm. right? And so I think just that is data gathering. That's like yeah. huge data gathering. And so that's where I would say without the tool, without the state or district implementation, that's really what teachers can do. And it is so valuable for them because then they have a starting point to support this kid in their classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I agree completely where I've seen, I've had students who you know, where I had a fifth and sixth grade group of newcomers I was working with. And one student was completely fluent in Spanish and we didn't know this. And he's sitting in the class really bored because he had so much inside his brain. He had so much vocabulary that he didn't want to share. And as soon as we got him talking, he, I mean, he was out of the class because he was way too advanced. And then those who didn't have that transfer, you know, there was a lot of other issues going on. And so it was just, it's so valuable to be able to see that. And I, I can't agree with you more anymore on that of just, even if you don't know the student's native language, if you can pull up a reading passage, you know, that's at that grade level in their native language and just let them read it to you. I mean, you can see quickly if they are able to read it fluently or if they're decoding or if they have any of those skills, those are easy. They can easily transfer if they have those skills to yep. learning English. If they don't, then it's really I mean, it, I, I think it's just really focusing then on learning the English skills from scratch because you don't have that native language to really support them if they don't have it. Is that, do you agree? Yeah, I think so hard because there's years and years and years of research about how obviously like the stronger you are in that yeah. first language, right, in terms of literacy and how that will transfer over into the next language. And while we're very fortunate to have many dual language programs in Spanish, we don't have them in, you know, Bengali, for yep. example, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's really a pretty unique challenge in the sense of like, well, you know, where do I start with this kid? Because obviously I want them to have literacy in that first language. And also now they're in my classroom and I know that the way they're going to graduate is literacy in English, right? And so yeah. I definitely agree that these kids do need those foundational skills in English. I think for kids that were able to give them time, you know, trained individuals in their native languages, like, yes, we should be giving them that also. But uh, yeah, I think the reality is that we're just able to do it for more children in Spanish, for example, than we are for kids who speak other languages. And that at least starting from the get-go of like, okay, this kid needs foundational skills. So we're starting in foundational skills in English is a gift for these kids to be able to ensure that they're supported in school and that they can access content. Absolutely. Yes. Are you seeing more of a, a gray area between defining or identifying newcomers and identifying SLIFE students? Because I know, you know, here in Panama, post-pandemic, I mean, the schools were literally shut down for two years. And so yeah. every student, every student that went to public school here is years behind because they were already pretty, you know, just the education here is really poor. So it's like, how do you, if a student here went into the U S how do you really know if they're a newcomer, if they're slife, what do you, you know, Yeah, is there a difference between that? Is it even worth it to have a difference or are we just really approaching each child <laughs> and just right. seeing what they need, you know? Right. Right. For sure. Like in the larger ideal of life in the world, like we wouldn't have any labels. Yes, exactly. Every human, just... right? Like every human would get what they needed. Yes. And like that, right? Like <laughs> it would be beautiful, right? Unfortunately, <laughs> the world does not work that way. Yeah. I mean, 
It's a great point and a really, really important point. And obviously what the pandemic, like, or kind of post-pandemic has shown us is that obviously areas of the world where children had access to education, whether that's because they had access to computers and internet, whether that's because they had access to more money to be able to pay for those things, right? Mm -hmm. You know, those kids did not have as significant interruptions in their education as children who didn't. And so I think the, you know, when I first started people or not just even started teaching, but certainly when I kind of moved more into co-founding the the company, people would keep saying like newcomers Mm -hmm. and then, but they would mean slife, but they would say newcomers. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the reason why the differentiation is important is because we are receiving newcomer students who, even if their school shut down during COVID, their schooling actually didn't really stop. Right. Mm -hmm. Like COVID things shut down around what, April, May of 2020. Um, And so that was close to the end of the year. Then there was summer. And then you have some kids around the world who had access to Wi-Fi. Their their schools were able to get right back on. And that's what they did. Or in certain countries, they got really creative, right? Mm -hmm. With outdoor spaces or whatever it was. And so those kids did have access. And we have some of those kids coming into the United States and when you do look at their academic abilities, they're right on grade level, right? Yeah. And they are, they're, they've got the fluency and the reading and the math, and they're just transferring right into English language the way that you would see a typical child who hasn't had interrupted education. So I think the, I don't know that it's like so binary, right? As like newcomer yeah. or slife, right? Or how many newcomers are slife? I think that's important. Um, I think to your point of, we need to be looking at our newcomer students certainly in a more holistic way, whether mm-hmm. that means we decide to, you know, keep the slight label or put the slight label into policy or whatever it is. Uh, you know, I don't know yet about, about that and how that's going to go, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do think it is abundantly clear that putting all of our newcomers in the same bucket and being like, Oh, well, you're a newcomer. Yep. Right. And <laughs> Again, not one so, size fits all. <laughs> right, like, you know, and just being like, Oh, okay. So like then all newcomers just get put in the newcomer class it doesn't work and it doesn't make sense. And so we certainly need more mechanisms to better understand who the kids are, where they're coming from, what their experiences were so that schools, teachers, like everyone can create better programs, better schedules for the kids and just better pedagogy all around in order to support them. So what do you, what can you share with us? Can you give us a few different ways that schools can increase their capacity for supporting both newcomers and SLIFE students? Yeah. I think the first is making sure this is a basic one. All of the PD that happens, all of the planning that happens, whether it's during the summer or the week before school or a few days before school, I think the first thing that needs to happen is that everyone needs to have a conversation of like, we have newcomers in this building, or we're going to have newcomers in this building, which means, and this is what I tell schools, that everyone needs to get up out of their seats, out of their PD seats, walk outside the building, look at the building and ask yourselves, what about this building is either welcoming or unwelcoming, familiar or unfamiliar for a newcomer student? Mm. And if you have most things on your list that it would be unfamiliar for a child from, you know, whatever country, then we need to figure out a way to make it familiar to them and make it less scary. Like that's terrifying to go to school 
in a new place, right? With buildings mm-hmm. that look nothing like nothing where you're like from, your school, right? No. Like, you're like, what in the world? <laughs> I mean, you know, some of these buildings have thousands and thousands of kids. Yeah. Imagine if you're coming from a place where your entire school was 30 kids, right? Yeah. And now yeah. you're being thrown into a school where you don't speak the language. Maybe you've had interrupt or inconsistent education, right? And no one on staff has really thought about just even what the school building looks like and all the processes of how to get in the building, security, yes. who, where your classes where you are, go. the schedules, right? Exactly. All those things. When I think about school capacity, obviously there's the curricular side, but I think before we even get to the curriculum pedagogy, we have to really look at what does it mean for a child who's never had this experience before and speaks another language, right? And has all these layers of, mm-hmm. of needs, of, of basic needs, because those are safety needs. When we go to new places, people, like, it can feel really unsafe. So I think, you know, that in terms of building capacity, that's what that means. Anytime I work with schools, I'm like, we're doing a walkthrough. So everybody's mm-hmm. going to have to get up, you know, and we go through every single aspect of the school. Like, we go into the office. If a child comes into this office, a kid and their parent comes into this office, and they've had interrupted education, maybe they don't read, they speak another language. What is the process? Who is the person who is going to say to this family who maybe look confused, they might look scared, who's the first person who's welcoming Mm -hmm. them? And so it's, I think the the capacity building, again, obviously the curriculum, there's a curriculum point that, you know, needs to be discussed, but before a kid even gets in the classroom or before that teacher even starts that capacity building within the curriculum, we have to look at our buildings and the processes and the structures in our school buildings in order to make sure they're really ready for these kids and that they're they're really safe for these kids, right? In terms of emotionally and psychologically and all of those pieces as well. I agree completely with what you're saying. And I think too, I mean, it's sometimes hard Understandably so, if you've never experienced, you know, what these students are going through, and many of us have not, then it's hard for us to really put on, you know, what it's like to enter a building and not know the language and things like that. But I think it's important to use the stories of your students and and ask them, those students who are older, those students who have gone through the program, those students who are successful and saying, you know, what, what could we have changed about the way that, you know, when you first entered the school, what could we have improved on? I have a podcast episode, one of my favorites, episode seven of one of my friends who went to the U.S. when he was 16. And he was just sharing how, you know, when the first bell rang and he had no, no English oh, no. at all and nobody was helping him. And so the first bell rang and he thought, because in Panama, everybody goes in the same or they stay in the class and the teachers switch in. So they don't mm. have classes. Sure. And so all of a sudden, all the kids go in every direction. And he's like, I have nowhere to go. Oh my gosh. And yes. so, you know, we don't think about those things. If you've grown up in the US and this is your norm is, oh yeah, you switch classes and, you know, here's your schedule, follow where the, the classroom is. And I can't imagine in a high school campus when it's oh. so enormous. Yes. So just if you're unsure of areas that are, you know, that need improvement on or that are unfamiliar, really ask the students that you're working with to see those areas that you're like, you know what, if we would have done this differently, like if for him, if he would have had a visual schedule with a clock or somebody that's going to meet with him and and lead him to each class, I mean, that would have changed everything. And he eventually got there. I mean, our students are so resilient. They get there, but it's like, if we can speed up those initial, you know, first few weeks of that, that fear and that uncertainty and all of those things that go into it and all of a sudden they feel really safe and feel really welcomed. I mean, they're now going to be ready for the academic part um, a lot faster than if they're really feeling 
afraid because they have to go to the bathroom and they're not sure how to say, where is the bathroom? I mean, that is, that's yeah. a scary moment. <laughs> yes, it really is. And I, I really love that. I think utilizing the kids who are in the building, who've been through it and having those conversations and connections with them is so critical in order to better be able to understand how to build capacity within schools. And something you just said reminded me of a session I've done before with schools in that like, yeah, it is hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes. I I can't remember who says it, but there's a quote, I don't remember the researcher, but he says, it's impossible for someone who's literate to Mm -hmm. understand what it means to not be literate. Yes. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's, that's so true. I mean, cause even when you go to another country, if you're literate, you're going to be able to use those skills yes. to piece things together or problem solve or figure things out. Um, even if you're yeah. lacking the language. So the good point. So Orly, we're running out of time here, but why don't you share a little bit about, tell me, tell us a little bit about your company, what you guys do, because I think it's really an incredible you know opportunity for these schools to connect with you and then share a little bit about where they can find you. Inlayer Learning was co-founded on the challenge that I had as a teacher of not understanding my students' kind of more holistic data and their academic skills. And so we build assessments um, and screeners really that do that. And so we have our uh, environmental screening questions and questionnaires that often goes more kind of with the intake and registration, either at the school level or district level. Um, And then we look at a child's academic skills, um, again, really asset-based in their first language of instruction. So uh, we've decided on that term because recognizing some students will speak oral languages and then went to school in another language. And so we have our Spanish one launching this summer and our Arabic one is in development and launching in the fall, which we're very excited about. And then we also provide uh, schools, district, state, either with no cost sessions, you know, kind of webinars to support newcomers, life, multilingual learners in general, um, and then also some paid like conferences and summits. And you can find us at inlierlearning.com. And you can always reach out to me, which is at orly at inlierlearning.com. We love hearing from teachers, even just, or anyone really just to chat on this topic. It's our favorite types of connecting, even if they're not using the product. It's like we love talking to everyone who's working with these kids. And so we love it when people reach out. Awesome. Well, we will put those links in the show notes. They can reach right out and connect with you. you. And I think, you know, the work that you're doing is really, really important for these students. And hopefully it helps to bring some cohesion across state lines around the country so that there's, that this is not as, I hope I have you back in a couple of years and we can say like, wow, look at this is, there's policy happening. This is not as complicated. Yes. It would be wonderful. (laughs) I, yes, I hope so. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Orly, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. All links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you're looking for even more support and done-for-you resources created specifically for the needs of ELLs, head to inspiringyounglearners.com. I'll catch you here next week. Until then, take that next step to keep equipping your ELLs.